Welcome to Healing the Tigress, a podcast of stories and conversations on Asian American Pacific Islander maternal mental health. We are your hosts, Peggy, a licensed clinical social worker and certified breastfeeding peer counselor. And Jasmine, a clinical pharmacist with a perinatal mental health certification. Both of us are Taiwanese American mothers and survivors of postpartum depression and anxiety. We don't know about you, but we didn't grow up talking much about mental health in our families, and we want to change that now that we are mothers. Together, with our clinical backgrounds and passion on the subject, we want to create a safe space for the AAPI community to discuss perinatal mental health issues. And together, we want to break generational cycles in our own parenting journeys so that we can heal our inner tigress, a nod to the tiger moms before us. We are so happy you're tuning in here. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Healing the Tigress. We are really excited today because we have with us a guest who is our first male guest on our podcast. So today we have J.S. Park. Some of you might know him, uh, I think, as the gr- – are you called the the Grief Catcher? Is that your nickname? Or I can't, I can't remember what they, they call you as. Yeah, I guess grief catcher or the joke that I've made where I'm a cross between a priest and a therapist, a therapist. <laughs> okay, is, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we have with us J.S. Park, who is a hospital chaplain. He's a published author of The Voices We Carry and a viral blogger. And he has a Master of Divinity and a Bachelor's in Psychology. So for eight years, he's been an interfaith chaplain at a 1,000-plus bed hospital that is designated as a level one trauma center. And his role includes grief counseling, attending every death, every trauma in Code Blue, staff care, and supporting end-of-life care. And he also served for three years as a chaplain at one of the largest nonprofit charities for the homeless on the East Coast. And also, very exciting, his next book, on Grief comes out in April this year. So, JS, thank you for being with us here today. And would you mind briefly sharing with our listeners a little bit about your cultural background and your journey into parenthood? Yeah, yeah. Can I first say thank you for inviting me? I love the title of your podcast, oh, the name of it, Healing the you. Tigress. What a what a wonderful, yeah, what a wonderful name. And it's funny as you're reading the bio when you when it said viral blogger, I was like, oh, I probably need to update that because like Gen Z is going to be like, what's a blogger, you know? I, I know, right? Everyone's on TikTok <laughs> yeah. or just social media these days. Who blogs anymore? Should we just call you an influencer? Is yeah, that what the kids yeah. are calling you now? <laughs> influencer, is that still a thing? I guess so. I say viral grammar or viral talker, viral yeah. TikToker. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I um, cultural background. I'm Korean American, uh, born and raised in the U.S. in good old Florida. So as you can imagine, sometimes a tough experience. Often being uh, one of the only Asian Americans that I knew here in Florida. And uh, my parents are both Korean, but they met in uh, New York. So they both happened to emigrate there around the same time. Uh, when they got pregnant, they moved to Florida, and that's where I was born. And so I am second generation Korean American immigrant family. Um, I guess I have maybe what is now like the prototypical, the lunchbox story. Um, I have like several, you know, several of those kind of stories where I brought the lunch and the kids were like, what is that? But um, yeah, yeah, I, uh, 
uh, Korean American, and my dad has like a, he is from Busan. Okay. So if um yeah yeah so he has like a I guess a Southern Korean accent is what you would kind of call it. So for any Korean listeners, like to say hello in Korean is 안녕하세요. But I think in my the way my dad would say it is 안녕하십니까. It's very different. It's a very sing song. Oh, I have never heard yeah, that. Yeah, very different. And I have. Uh, yeah, it's called Hatori, which is like the kind of Southern Korean accents. So I have a little bit of it. My Korean's not great at all, but when I do speak Korean, even my Korean friends are like, "Wow, that's a mix of American accent and Hatori." <laughs> so yeah, but uh, I'm taking a long time to answer the question. But that's basically cultural backgrounds, second generation uh, Korean American. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That's really interesting. And can you tell us a little bit about your journey into parenthood and how you became a dad? Yeah, I uh, am maybe a little embarrassed uh, to admit that uh, I wasn't sure about having children. In fact, that's not embarrassing. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's one of those things where maybe traditionally or or socially or culturally, I think that embarrassment is probably internalized just from you know the narratives we grow up with, and so that embarrassment, I guess, is still there, even though the cognitive part of me knows I shouldn't be the human part of me is kind of like, you know, still has internalized that message, right? But I think a lot of the fear was because I didn't want to pass down a lot of the trauma that I had been dealt. And so there was almost this uh, protective fear about if I am to raise a child in the world, Mm -hmm. is it okay? Uh, Will he or she, will they be okay? Um, And so there was a part of me that felt like if I don't have children, maybe I'm sparing someone. And uh, my wife very much wanted children, and she never pushed too hard, uh, was very kind and gracious about it. And she knew a lot of the trauma that I had grown up with, an abusive and very uh, turbulent and often violent household. And I know my parents have since reconciled with them. I love them very much, and I know uh, they really, really did their best, and they're great-grandparents. They're really good grandparents. Um but uh, that is the home that I grew up in. And so the parenting journey, that initial part, there were a lot of obstacles and barriers that I had to work through, a lot of unresolved trauma that I had to heal through. But it was almost like uh, overnight. There's very few overnight things that happen where I wake up with an epiphany. But the parenting, the children, you know, wanting children, that was very much one of those. I woke up saying, I think I really, oh, really, wow. really want children. I think I'm ready. Yeah. And uh, so my wife, of course, was very, very excited. Um, I'm, you know, over 40. So I guess I'm kind of at least traditionally socially considered like a late dad. Like, you know, I'm, I'm having children late, quote unquote. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I was, I don't think I could have had children for me, at least like if I was 25, <laughs> I don't think I would have been ready, you know, or even 35. Um, yeah. But uh, part of that was really coming to grips with how I was parented and um, understanding and embracing that I can change the story for myself, that I can do differently than my parents did. I don't have to take on what my parents did. And there's still so much subconscious and internalized and deeply rooted that I'm still working through. But just the belief and the encouragement, yes, I can do differently. I can break cycles. I can be a different kind of parent. That's beautiful. And I think a lot of us go into parenting like that too, just wondering like, 
trying to do our best. Everyone, you know, as a parent tries to do their best. And so, you know, we've, we've had a lot of mothers on this podcast so far. They talked about some of their experience with postpartum uh, mood disorders, and we've kind of yet to hear the experience of a father. So this is very refreshing. Um, Peggy, I think you told me something about the number of listeners we have that are actually male. Yeah. Can you share yeah. that? Yeah. So our stats show us that like a quarter of our listeners are male uh, based on the the data we get on our listeners and audience. So that was surprising to me too, that we have a good chunk of male listeners tuning in. So yeah, that's, and you know, studies also show like one in 10, usually they say one in 10 dads can experience postpartum depression. And what I have learned from my studies um, for my perinatal mental health certification is that it, it, some people are like, well, dads can't get it. You know, they weren't pregnant. They didn't go through that. But actually, studies have shown that men's um, hormone levels actually do change during postpartum and that it is actually a little bit biological as well. So it's not to dismiss that men can get some sort of postpartum mood changes as well. And... Um, you know, we're curious what it was like for you with your wife's first pregnancy. Yeah. And, you know, in reference to the male listeners, a quarter of them, you know, when I bought the book, uh, What to Expect When You're Expecting. <laughs> I had that too. The, uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, there were sections in the book for dads. And I was like, I'm certain that in that part of the bookstore, you're, you're going to find dads there too. Um, and so, yeah, I I had I had all the books, all the Emily Oster stuff, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, all the things that I needed to read, and then and then some of the classes I took because we had our child right before the pandemic, uh, or right when the pandemic hit, basically. Um, so essentially, our daughter's a pandemic baby, um, is you know what they say is what they call it. But um, yeah, I saw a lot of men in those classes, you know. So certainly, this is very valuable for us to know and and you know, should be the bare minimum that men do as far as research and diving into it. Right. Um, but yeah, my wife and I, it was the summer of 2020, you know, our country at that time, the U S was just torn apart by a lot of civil rights, terrible issues. You know, George Floyd was murdered. Yeah. The pandemic, uh, was going on. And at the time, nobody knew anything about the pandemic. There was not a vaccine. I was still working at the hospital. I was essentially in the front lines at a level one trauma center. And then my wife, when she gave birth, about three weeks later, she said, I think I have a problem. Oh. Um, I, I think I need to get help. And... Um, I was stunned. And at the same time as a chaplain and someone in the mental health field, I jumped as quickly as I could to getting all the resources and everything. The difficult part was there were so many barriers to getting help because of pandemic, we were essentially still on lockdown. And uh, doctors, therapists weren't seeing anybody. Hospitals, doors were locked. We, there was a time we couldn't even have visitors. When my wife gave birth, we had zero visitors. I was the only one allowed. We were masked the entire time. Um, and uh, you can imagine my wife giving birth with a mask on. I remember at one point she ripped it off and she yeah. said, I can't, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and family, they were very careful. They didn't want to come over. And we, you know, we were having social distancing and all for good reasons. And at the same time, not having your village, your people, your community, that, that was all these layers of heartache. And then uh, my 
wife uh, around week three, I think it was, is when she told me she needed help. And so we made an appointment with a doctor. We, you know, tried to get the prescriptions and everything else. And it was probably around week four or five that my wife became completely debilitated. And I extended, uh, yeah, my medical leave uh, to 12 weeks. Um, and our daughter, um, she, I think, had some form of colic, but she was crying constantly. And uh, she could not really um, be soothed at all. And her leg had tremors. So the doctor told us it's possible she had cerebral palsy. Um, so I became essentially caregiver at home for wife and daughter and my wife. And I just want to place a trigger warning here before I'm, I say what I'm going to say, just for mm -hmm. listeners who are listening, if you want to turn on the volume. But uh, my wife kept saying at, at around week four, I want to exit. I can't do this. The word she kept using was exit. And uh, I would say around week five or six, um, I started finding her in, in you know, not that we have so many rooms in the house, but I found her in various rooms in our house holding a bottle of painkillers. And um, I remember several times in the middle of the night, I'm a light sleeper. I woke up and she had the bottle of painkillers and I had to wrestle them out of her hand several times. And she just kept yelling, I want to exit. So I had to throw away all the painkillers um, and uh, we didn't have help. You know, people just couldn't come over. And so it's kind of on me. And I lasted, I think, about seven weeks I went strong. Um, I was sleeping maybe two to three hours a night, um, sometimes not at all. And then by week four or five, I started hallucinating. Um, I um, was seeing myself walk into rooms in the hallway. Uh, I was hearing music in different rooms. And uh, mm -hmm. I kept hearing our daughter cry, even though she wasn't crying. And uh, it was lack of sleep, you know, um, and also just the constant anxiety. And uh, around week seven, I just collapsed. And I, you know, because I was going full strength, just 110% every day. And then I decided I needed help too. And uh, when I went to see my doctor, I went to my primary care first. I begged her, if can I come in? I will, you know, wear all the protective gear from head to toe, but I have to see another human person. You know, so I went to see her. She was fully geared up. I was fully geared up, you know, all the protective stuff. I told her what was going on. And literally what she, she told me two things. She said, I can feel the anxiety coming off your body. Um, you know, we couldn't see each other's faces, but she could feel the anxiety. I was probably in her room shaking and I was, you know, and then, uh, she said, oh, you're a chaplain. She said, um, well, my, uh, my husband's dying of cancer. Mm. So here I am, like, you know, I jump right into caregiver mode and, uh, we ended up talking about her husband and, you know, I, I, that's nothing to say, like to blame my doctor at all. That's just to say that we were all struggling. And when I heard her say that I immediately shifted towards her. So I remember being spent because I just kind of counseled her a bit. And when I left her office, um, I remember, I don't remember the exact words she said, but we were about 20 feet away as I was leaving. And she took off her mask just so I could see her face. And uh, 
she said something comforting. I can't even remember what it was, but what I do remember is I got to see a whole human face for the first time in weeks and just her comforting look and that reassurance is really what I needed. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think this went on, I would say for about five months. Um, my wife and I both went on medication. We both went to therapy individually and around month five, my wife got better. She turned a corner and around month five is, uh, that was around Christmas. Um, there was a bottle of wine in the house that we were going to gift to someone. And um, I've been sober from alcohol for, I want to say, almost two decades now. But in December of 2020, I, I broke sobriety. I, I drank that whole bottle of wine. I just had this breakdown just because of the mounting um, depression. So, I, you know, I say that to my own shame, and I'm also trying to give grace to myself on that. I, I just needed to escape, you know? Um, but it was after that that I started to turn a corner a little bit too. And I can say to you, uh, Jasmine, Peggy, and, I, and interrupt me and pause me anytime, you know, I know 100% for sure uh, it was worse for my wife. And when I say worse for my wife, what I mean is she is at the center of this maelstrom of biological and, and social forces and raising a baby and the pressure of that. And I think I experienced maybe a fraction or an overlap of what she experienced, the depression and the anxiety. And uh, it probably the depression and the anger and the irritability, what people don't talk about with depression is the irritability and the anger and the likeliness to explode and to feel rage. Yeah. All of that nearly ended our marriage. And, you know, we went into couples therapy during that time too. Um, but I'm so glad for resources. I'm so glad for we were able to find doctors online that we moved toward, you know, we were making that move towards telehealth near the end of the year. And uh, I had people who checked in. I'm so glad for that mm -hmm. doctor who took the time yeah. with me, allowed me to come in. She probably mm -hmm. saved my life that day. You know, th thank you for sharing this, you know, and, and, and acknowledging how hard it is for moms, but also like sharing and lending your story for the dads out there that might be too scared to say that they're also going through something like this. I think hearing another person going through it that looks like you, that is, you know, kind of like another Asian male. That's the thing, right? Like, a lot of Asian males, I think there's this stereotype of like just males in general. We have to keep, you guys have to keep it all together. You have to be strong. And then even for Asian males, I feel like there's another extra layer on top of that. So I think you sharing this with us is really, um, I think it's going to help people like hearing that. And, and the fact that you're, you were open to, you know, taking antidepressants, going to therapy, going to couples therapy. That's so huge. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Thank you, Jasmine, Peggy. And, you know, I, I consider myself very lucky because I have those resources and that community. Um, and I can say at the same time, you know, part of that, the masculinity and the narratives and stories were taught about what it is to be a man and to be a dad and a husband. I really felt at that time, a lot of the limitations of what there is for resources 
for dads who are experiencing that sort of heaviness. And I, and not just for dads, but the limitations of the mental health community. I mean, when my wife first told a doctor about what she was experiencing, she got what we call Baker acted, which in Florida is a mandatory 72 hour hold. If you express suicidal ideation and police were like sent to our house, you know? And so things like that, which were completely unhelpful, you know, uh, as quick fixes and things like that. And even me telling certain people like, you know, it's really hard on my wife and it's hard on, on me too. And people kind of maybe being like, well, you know, what do you have to worry about? Or, Hey, you need to take care of her or you're in a great, at least you got time off work. Some of the things I was told, yeah, almost was like an expectation that I needed to step up. And I think that's probably why I pushed so hard because I remember that seven weeks, I felt like I was going a thousand miles an hour, taking care of baby, trying to make sure that, you know, she gets her formula and then running to wife and then making sure, you know, so I think some of those narratives, I wish there was more resources and I wish the stories for us uh, were different. And again, I know that what I experienced is a fraction of what my wife did, but um, I consider myself lucky in some areas and in some areas there needs to be more discussion, more openness and a lot more grace for us. You know, when I, you know, heard you talking about the anxiety that was vibrating off your body, um, I remember this article uh, where someone interviewed you and you mentioned this death anxiety. You deal with death all the time in your job and the thought of possibly losing your wife when you have a new baby. Yeah. Did that death anxiety play a part of this, like as I'm imagining you wrestling these meds out of her hands and just flashing through your mind, am I, am I going to wake up one morning and she's not alive? Like did those thoughts cross your mind? And how did that play into just how much you already deal with a lot of death in your in your job? Yeah. You know, well, first, Peggy, that's a, a great question and great as and very insightful. Um, I think I felt it on two levels. I think one is that uh, the death anxiety that I experience does cause me to be sometimes overly cautious of everything because I've seen all the ways that people can get sick and injured. Um, being at so many deathbeds at this point, probably I think hundreds now, and working in a level one trauma center where we get car accidents, fire, fall, strokes, electrocution, drowning, uh, heart attacks, all kinds of things. Um, in my mind, I'm like, gosh, anything can hurt you. Anything can harm you. There's, there's a lot of fear there. Um, and so, yes, seeing my wife kind of, you know, at the edge of possibly harming herself. Um, I was scared because I've seen so many stories like that. I've seen the beginnings of them and the endings of them, you know, when they first get to the hospital and then at the end, when they have to go out the side door, basically to the funeral home. So I've seen those stories. And so there was, of course, this very intense fear. I think the other layer to that is having the death anxiety that I do. I think in the last, I've worked there at the hospital now for eight years. I would say, especially since the pandemic, seeing death around the clock, because I was still working, um, I think I am much more present to the moment. And so there was this urgency. And maybe it was good, maybe it was bad, but I know that when I was with my wife, I was completely present in the moment. 
And I even had like the wherewithal and the presence of mind to take a lot of videos of our daughter at the time. Cause I was like, I still, I still don't want to miss these moments, you know, and, uh, playing with her as much as possible, being as present as I could, like everything, it felt like the walls were closing in and I was like, but still, I'm never getting these moments back. I know how quick it goes. I know that youth doesn't guarantee a long life. And so my wife, I think her body's coping mechanism was to forget those five months. She barely remembers them. Her, her trauma response was to block, block it out. And maybe in some way that's a hidden mercy. There's some sort of hidden grace there, but I have lots of videos to show her. <laughs> She's so glad that I took them. So there's something about the death anxiety that turns into life appreciation. And you know, I, I, I don't think I'm saying anything new with that, but I really embody it and live it. And it was almost like put upon me, you know, that, that sort of anxiety almost sublimated or turned into transformed into, I'm going to be present to this moment because it, this really could be it. I love that. It's kind of turned into a gift, right? This being around death and being so aware of it and, and how life is so short. And instead it gives you this gift of, I will live it. I'm going to play with my baby all the time. I'm going to record like, and it, and it became a gift also to your wife who has blocked that out because of her trauma, but she still gets to see those and, and live those moments. And it's just, it's so interesting because I think our society and our cultures don't deal with death very well, you know? And so mm -hmm. to see how understanding death can actually give you this gift is, is really different. I think, um, like a yin and yang yeah. kind of thing. And, um, and, I just love that you took over and thought about what your wife would need after she recovered um, because when I was going through this as well, and I recently actually wrote about this myself that, you know, I felt like I missed out on the months that I was really, really depressed as well. And being able to go back and see things that my husband had taken luckily um, that was really a gift. So I'm glad that, you know, you did that for her and I'm sure she appreciates it, you know, now that you're on this other side of it. Yeah. And I know you've also openly shared that you guys had a miscarriage earlier last year, right? But mm -hmm. she's, she's pregnant now. So, um, I'm sure there was another wave of grief when that came through. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that happened uh, over Easter weekend of 2023. And uh, it's, um, you know, it's so strange. And I don't think I've shared this publicly anywhere. When my wife got pregnant that time, uh, uh, when we found out around, I want to say February or, or March, uh, right before, you know, a couple months before Easter, um, I felt something wrong uh, in my chest. I was like, I, and I was like, oh, maybe this is just the anxiety over, you know, our first child's experience, you know? Uh, but I was like, I told my wife, I was like, I feel something isn't, isn't right. And about week, maybe 11 or 12, my wife started bleeding and didn't stop. Um, and so I think it was uh, maybe a Thursday we went to the hospital or a Friday. It might've been good Friday, in fact. Um, we found out that, you know, the baby was not viable, you know, very clinical terms, but basically uh, he or she, and I'm pretty sure she um, 
was not going to make it. So on Saturday, she had a procedure um, to, you know, remove what was there. And even that, you know, with Florida, uh, with all the legislation and weird stuff, the doctors were very hesitant. You know, all of that stuff really affects and can harm people. So we were living through that. And on that Saturday, she was a patient at the hospital that I worked at. So I was, and I worked that day. So I was running back and forth doing visits and then checking in on my wife. And I'm very thankful for my manager who said, you know, spend as much time with um, your wife as you need is what she uh, thankfully told me. Um, but uh, you know what? I'm, I'm uh, still not over it. I'm not over it. I don't know if I will be. Um, in fact, this, um, my wife's pregnant again. She got pregnant again pretty quickly, but I consider uh, him our third child, mm. you know? Um, yeah. As you should. As you should. You can honor that. Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing. I, I know this is a heavier um, episode probably of all the things we're sharing, but I think it also needs to be heard. Um, especially coming from like a dad um, and and honoring that you guys have these feelings too. And it's, it's okay to have those feelings. You know, Peggy and I have talked a lot actually about how a lot of postpartum is like a process of grief, you know, grieving what we thought motherhood would look like, grieving the loss of our identity before we became mothers. You know, even like you grieving the loss of a pregnancy. A lot of us grieve in silence and we don't share that we miscarried. Um, so, you know, how do you feel grief probably plays into perinatal mood disorders? Um, and, and is there any advice you can give mom, new moms entering into this big transition in their, their life when it comes to grief? Yeah, I think, and, um, Correct me or pause me at any point. Um, I think I feel there may be two questions in this. Mm -hmm. One about kind of the social cultural pressure of what motherhood or parenthood should look like and that contributing to uh, quote unquote mood disorders mm -hmm. or a certain distress that new parents will feel. And then the grief of that and grieving uh, things that we feel like we're missing. And I think on this part, like, my, yeah, my wife and I both noticed sort of like a bounce back culture um, in which new moms were like running marathons and, you know, completely back to full health. And so um, that I think caused a lot of perfectionistic type of distress, like, like a feeling of, oh, these, these moms are already back to their pre-birth weight, you know, um, that sort of thing. And uh, they're already back out in the world and they're working and they're, you know, momming already while working at the same time. And it's like, how soon can we get back into the fray of things? So that is kind of its own additional distress. And so some of the grief of being a new parent is, I think, a little bit socially prescribed. And, and what I mean by that is, I'm trying to say this with as much kindness as possible, because the grief we experience as new parents is absolutely real. Uh, but I do think some of that grief may be socially prescribed in that when people, yeah, when people feel like they're missing out on something about being this kind of mom, this kind of dad, um, that grief we feel is real. But I also question where's the measure of that grief coming from? And I think some of that is the perfectionistic, socially prescribed standard 
that's placed on us. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes when I talk with my patients or when I'm talking with people who are new parents, I'm almost like, you know, that grief you feel, I validate it. It's so real. Um, the grief is very real. And at the same time, I question, um, should it be a measure of your value and your worth? Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. And do you think that being Asian American adds another layer to that? Yeah. I mean, it sounds almost stereotypical to say, mm-hmm. uh, but I think, you know, being born in an immigrant family and for anyone who's second generation, third generation, we are going to internalize a lot of those uh, perfectionistic standards, you know? And I think even saying depression, talking about mental health, if it's something that not vis- that's not visible on the surface, it may not be um, as taken seriously uh, as something that would be tangible or seen or visible. And so, um, yeah, with therapy, medication, you know, antidepressants, that doesn't seem to have like this tangible progress with an outcome, you know? And I think at least in my family, you know, they measure based on, well, the thing that you're doing, are you investing in this to get something back, to get something back more? And so, yeah, I tend to think that I think probably, at least I can speak from my own experience, mental health is seen as whatever because it's just this invisible thing that's a scam or there's no real progress or outcome that we can see from it. And and the words depression, it's almost like, well, you just need to try harder or work past it or there's a lot of compartmentalization. So I feel like I'm not saying anything new with that. But they're think positive. Yeah, right. right? Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those like, you know, thanks, I'm cured, (laughs) you know. I really like that thought about how like it's not tangible. And so a lot of Asians kind of dismiss it. I know my parents' generation totally do. And that whole thing about investing, like, are you going to get something back for investment? Are you Mm. are you paying for this therapy? Are you really going to get something back for it? Because I can't see the progress. I can't see that you're actually getting better or not physically. Um, and I, I totally can relate with that, uh, with, with my own family. So, I mean, like even when people, when, when my, my family, people in my family get physically hurt, sometimes they don't want to go see the doctor. So it's yeah. like, <laughs> can you imagine like telling them I have something wrong with my thoughts? Like yeah. something up here chemically is not right. Yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah, those are all really Really good points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, you know, can I pivot to a side note that sure. I noticed with like that sort of standard? I think this may be a, a common struggle that new parents face, but my wife had trouble with uh, our daughter latching, you know, with breastfeeding. And there's a whole breast is best thing. And I'm, mm. I'm sure you may have covered this already uh, on some episodes, but um, it was very difficult for one, for the latching, um, that was very hard. And it felt like that we were, we doing something wrong. Is there something wrong with, you know, one of us. And then especially with the idea that a baby can only be healthiest, you know, with breastfeeding. And so what, uh, ended up happening was Juliet had to go on the, not had to go, but chose to go on the antidepressants, the medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with that can no longer breastfeed because mm. it's no longer safe. And so we had this whole day where uh, Juliet told our daughter, I'm sorry that I can't breastfeed you. Oh, 
Um, it was, yeah, like a day of grieving that. And that was a very hard grief to get through. Can I interject yeah. really quick? Because as a pharmacist, okay, and as a person who's just recently studied for perinatal mental health certification stuff and went into like psychopharmacology things, um, I, I really wish people talked more about the risks of being on antidepressants and breastfeeding at the same time. Because a lot of this um, scare on that, like now that I'm on an antidepressant, I cannot breastfeed. Some of that is actually false. So Mm -hmm. a lot of these Mm. medications have been studied for so long. The risk and like the amount that you have in the breast milk can actually be very low and low risk. And babies turn out just fine, even with moms who are on antidepressants. The other thing is like, untreated illness, the risk of that sometimes is greater than the risk of the antidepressant and breastfeeding. Wow. So I think there's this myth and like, you know, if people don't get the right information, like talking to somebody who's knowledgeable about it, um, some moms might choose, I don't want to be on an antidepressant because now I can't breastfeed, but they're not mutually mm. exclusive. Yeah. You can. And, and it's perfectly okay to work with somebody to find something that works and is still okay. Yeah. Wow. I think I'm that sorry that, is, yeah, you guys didn't get that. Because <laughs> yeah. especially to your point, uh, when you're, I, I can just see, especially with that whole breast is best, like, uh, attack from, from folks, then you're right. Some people will choose to not treat their depression just so they can breastfeed only to get worse. Right. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's, well, that's one thing that we really hope also to do with our podcast is to educate folks and let people know so that people can make really you know, decisions that feel like they're not having to choose. And yeah, that's really tough. Yeah. But yeah, that grief of, of feeling like you aren't able to give your baby something when at the end of the day, it's, it goes back to that social thing that you were mentioning before too. It's like, there's just these social pressures to do breast over formula or whatever. And your, your baby don't care or no, <laughs> you know, like just yeah. put something in my mouth and fill my belly, you know? And so, um, yeah. But I, I, I recognize that, you know, I, I can understand that grief because for me, when I was breastfeeding, I, I felt so much pressure to keep like my, my I had a very different experience where my baby wouldn't take a bottle. And so I was just stuck being like 24 seven nursing and just feeling like tethered to that. And so there's just so much about, I think, breastfeeding and how that plays into a lot of these mood disorders early on in, in postpartum that I I'm seeing that trend a lot in a lot of our episodes too, which I think is really interesting. And I think there can be a lot there to unpack too, but thank you for sharing that. Yeah. 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 Um, Before we end though, I do want to see if you want to tell us a little bit about your new book that's coming out in April. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't release the name of it yet. And I really, really wish I could. (laughs) That's okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but there's um, there's eight chapters, and it's all on grief, and it's different dimensions of grief. And one of the chapters I do share about uh, the PPD, and my wife and I are experienced through that. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, cool. but yeah, the first chapter is like loss of future dreams, which is something uh-huh. I think not talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is loss of uh, faith. There's loss of mental health. There's loss of worth. So I go through these different types of loss that we experience. And the last chapter is loss of a loved one, which is, uh, yeah, maybe the most, the grief that we think of the most. That sounds like it's going to be a helpful book, I think, for people who are grieving. Yeah. 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 So that will come out the end of April. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm happy to do part two when the book oh, comes yeah. out. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because there's still so much more to talk about. And yeah. And we have this on record that you said that. So <laughs> you can't yes, back out now. Is, and witnesses. Yeah, there's multiple people. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to wrap us up, Peggy, kind of? Or sure. Uh, what we love to do at the end. Oh, before we wrap up, we always like to let our listeners know where they can find you. What's the best place for folks to find you? Yep. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Mostly I'm on Instagram. So mm-hmm. Find me there. I check my messages and uh, I, I post uh, most frequently on Instagram. JS yep. Park 3000, I believe, is the handle, correct? Okay. Yes, oh. that's right. It's the one that wasn't <laughs> taken. <so. laughs> it's, we'll also put those links in the show notes so folks can also find you there and they can you Thank know, you. find the, your book and stay tuned for your next book. What we love to do at the end of every episode is just kind of go over what are we going to do for our mental health this week. And it's just a nice way to kind of take it back to ourselves, but also kind of gives our listeners a little, what do you want to do for your mental health this week? Who has something that wants to go first? You know? Oh, do you want to go? Oh, sure. Well, you know, I was just going to say we do check-ins at work. And I think there are questions that we ask each other, like, how are you feeling is a really good check-in. But one of the check-in questions we ask is, um, and who is going to help you today? Oh, and like we that. name, yeah, we name the people that we know we can rely on for that day. I like that. I love that. Oh, my gosh. I need to take that one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. Uh, for me, I feel like, I've just been wanting to do things around the house um, that I don't, that for some people that doesn't sound like self-care, but you know, <laughs> your, your home is your sanctuary. And I think that's this theme that I want, like my home is my mm-hmm. sanctuary. I really want to just make, make some space for me to do simple things around the house, whether it's, uh, I've been putting up some stuff you can't see, but I've been putting up some stuff in this room on my walls. Part of it's because I'm trying to fix the acoustics of this room for our podcast, but part of it's because this room has like bare walls and I just want, and I, I spend a lot of time in this room. So I really want to put up some things. And then, um, this is so silly. My poor fish has been swimming in filth for months and I felt like I should clean the fish tank. And I don't know why, but that felt like self care. Cause I'm, I don't know. I, maybe it's cause I'm like, I care, like I'm a care take, like that's part of I think my archetype of being like a caretaker and I, after cleaning her tank, I was like, look at that. That felt so nice to not see this poopy, nasty tank every time I walked by it. So like just something about like doing things in my home has been really kind of a self-care for me. No one put cleaning fish poop out of a tank on their (laughs) self-care list, but that's mine (laughs) for this week. I like that. And uh, mine is kind of similar in that I I'm trying to carve out time as well to clean up my office because you can't see it either. But my office is the opposite of yours, Peggy. It's way cluttered because since we've moved in over a year ago, <laughs> I still haven't like finished throwing out the things I need to throw out. So um, I actually purposely did not schedule things for my next time off that we're not recording um, to carve out time to do that. And I feel like I've just been on go, 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 like since this new year has started that I need to really like remind myself that like, I also need to take care of my space and myself. So that's mine. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. 
Well, JS, thank you so much uh, for sharing all of these personal stories, like things you haven't shared elsewhere with us. I really think that it's going to help another parent out there, another father, another partner. Um, and I just, I'm very excited for you for your next baby on the way. Congrats to you and your wife. And I know this transition is going to be a huge, probably a, a totally different um, experience. And I, I can't wait to also hear what you have to say about it because your words are always so insightful. And I, I love seeing your stories and your posts. Oh. Yeah. And we'll be seeing you yeah. on the podcast again soon, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Anytime you want me, I'm, I'm there. Awesome. Thank you, <laughs> thank so, you so much. much. All right. Thank you. hope you have enjoyed Healing the Tigress in our conversations on maternal mental health in the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Please follow our show and our Instagram page to catch our latest episodes. We have so many fantastic guests and deep topics that we are so excited to cover soon. If you enjoyed this episode or would like to support us more, please leave us a rating or a review and share this podcast with a friend to spread the word. Check out the show notes for more links. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope these conversations will help our AAPI mothers heal their inner tigress and honor their mental health as they deserve to. See you next time.